Good morning and welcome to episode 98 of the Cood Street podcast. This morning we are joined by World Fantasy Award winning author Nedia Korafor to discuss fantasy, science fiction and whatever else passes at our muster for discussion. Good, first of all, good morning and welcome, Nettie. Good morning to you too. And good morning, Gary. And good evening to you, Nettie. We don't have to pretend it's morning because we know perfectly well it's evening here in Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> and ha- ha- you want to say something, Gary? I was going to say I'm I'm surprised uh, that that we've never had you um, on our podcast before, Nettie. You've had a you've had a pretty hot couple of years here. <laughs> yep, very active. <laughs> Lots going on. I mean, you had the World Fantasy Award last year. I mean, this is not even going back to things like Willis Soyinka or that Macmillan Prize. Uh, and th- now coming up this summer, you have two different stories and two different years' best anthologies, which is kind of an unusual feat. Uh, not quite what they'd call a trifecta at the racetrack, but a difecta. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know racing terms. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's that's pretty cool for me because it's. Um, I've always had a hard time with short stories, so mm-hmm. there's something that I struggle with constantly. The format. I find short stories much harder to write than novels, believe it or not. And so, yeah, to have two in two, to have two stories in best ofs is unheard of for me. And of course, and of course, they're both basically science fiction stories. When your novels are basically fantasy novels, mm-hmm. which is a, a yeah. Know. Well, I've I've kind of been moving. I don't know. Lately, I've been writing, just leaning towards. I wouldn't say more towards science fiction, but it's it's yeah. I'd say more towards science fiction. <laughs> I guess. Yeah. <laughs> well. Um, I mean, well, one of the principles which I think Jack Vance invented is if you move far enough in the future, it doesn't really make much difference what you call it. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. I like that. I like that idea. Especially well, I mean, the part uh, I was saying, especially the part where it doesn't make any difference what you call it. I, I like that a lot. Yes. Mm. I, I guess something I thought would be interesting to start talking with fairly early on was how was it for you winning the World Fantasy Award last year for Who Fears Death? That was amazing. That was um, that was up there with when I w- won the Wally Sri Inca Prize. It was like the, it was the same kind of shock because mm-hmm. I just, I wasn't really even on, on the night that you know on the night that that the prize was announced. I wasn't even there, <laughs> and no. I, I was actually visiting a student of mine who found himself or who did something and wound up in jail, and I was visiting him there. So I didn't even know. In the back of my head, I knew it was supposed to be announced that night, but at the time, my focus was on my student and the fact that I was entering the Cook County Maximum Security Jail. Oh. So, <laughs> so I was just like in a completely different state of mind when I went, when I, um, when it all happened. So I only found out when I came out because you can't bring your cell phones or anything or anything I can bring is like your license. Um, so you can't bring anything with you. So I came out was fairly upset and then I, my cell phone was in my car and I checked my cell phone and I saw a text from my editor. And then I was like, wait a minute. Oh yeah. (laughs) Oh yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and so, and the the text said, um, "Oh, oh my God, you won!" And it was just a whole bunch of just 
things started crashing together in my head at that time. I'm like, jail. Oh my God, it's World Fantasy War. I won. Is this real? Oh my God. <laughs> Facebook. And I, I actually went to check Facebook to see, <laughs> see. Like, misinterpreting. So it was like that was a heck of a night. That really was because I it, it just didn't cross my mind that I would win that. I mean, it was such a an amazing. The finalists were all like amazing novels, and I was pretty They're, familiar yeah. with just all of them. It was the coolest list ever. <laughs> so I was, <laughs> I was just say, yeah, go ahead. Don't know that, that that has to make you feel. First of all, that's got to be one of the best stories for missing a world fantasy award I've heard. But doesn't it make you feel better when you know that all the other things on the list deserve to win the award? Also, I mean, it's yeah. Um, it's, yes. it's, it's, if you're on if you're on a list with well, I tell you what's bad, and I won't give any specifics. If you're on a list with a bunch of crappy stuff <laughs> and lose, that's bad. <laughs> No, usually you just chalk it up to somebody's incompetence. <laughs> well, I, yeah. you know, it's always just cool to even be, be on the list. So I, I don't even, you know, the, the winning part rarely crosses my mind if I get on any kind of finalist list. It's just cool to be there. So, so yeah, that was a heck of a, just a heck of a shock in a good way. <laughs> but, um, well, no, no. When the Wooly Sienka thing came up, that was just you, that was not a suspenseful thing. You were just told that you had it, right? No, I was not. Oh, really? I, I flew all the way to Nigeria. I, I get this email out of nowhere saying that I'm a finalist for this prize, and I, I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, right, okay, this must be one of those Nigerian scams or whatever. <laughs> yeah, I just dismissed it. And then next thing you know, they've emailed me the information for my ticket. And I was like, okay, now I have to go. <laughs> and and the, the other finalists on the list, there's one novel on there, um, Beast of No Nation. I love that novel. And I'm like, oh, that totally won. That novel was excellent. There's no way that I'm going to beat that. And so, you know, I just went to Nigeria thinking that I was going to lose. But, hey, I get a trip to Nigeria. I get to see all of my relatives and and I get to meet Wole Shoyinka and all these other writers. It was fine if I didn't win when I went. So I had no idea. Like, it did not. I had, And they said, oh, yeah, all of the winners or the winner has to have a speech prepared. Do you think I prepared a speech? No. Oh, no. <laughs> No, because I just assumed I hadn't won. So yeah, when I—that's what I mean. It was the same type of shock because it didn't even cross my mind at all. So and yeah, this, this is not even talking to genre folks. This is not even talking to This is like an, an African Nobel Prize. So these are mainstream, serious, heavy-duty people. Exactly, exactly. That's why I was like, "There's no way." But yep. you know, when I look yep. back on it, Zara that. Not only because I wrote it, but Zara in general, that was a very special novel. And mm. I understand mm. why it won. I, it, it just, it made sense. But that's only looking back on it. At the time, it didn't make sense to me. But now, now it really, yeah, it, it really makes a lot of sense. Mm. Well, I guess you never see that kind of thing about your own work at the time. You know, it, it's such a, you know, you're so, you can be so much inside your own book and have your own perspective on things that you don't actually sit there and go, well, it's actually the kind of thing that might win and there's a good logical reason for it having a chance at it. Right, right. Yes, exactly. It's usually the, the book is just, it's so close, it's so in your head and you're so in it that, I don't know, I don't know about other people, but like these prizes, they just, they, I don't even think about that. Mm. And when they happen, it's a shock every time. I'm like, oh, cool, they like this. <laughs> 
very cool. But yeah, I mean, I and when I'm writing, I'm not thinking, oh God, I'm award winner here. It's never. Come on. <laughs> But do you have that moment where you sort of you suddenly remember that somebody's going to read it? I mean, do you sort of lo lose track of it? I mean, you're talking about being at home, you're writing it, you're creating it. It's your book. You finish your book. Yes, you're going to take it to a publisher and everything else. But then you kind of almost lose track of the fact that it's going to be received by somebody, read by somebody, be considered for awards and all that kind of thing. Yes. And the, the, the time where I did that the most was with Who Fears Death. Mm. That one, I like... And, I, and I'm glad I did it that way because I, when I wrote that book, I just kind of shut my eyes and just let it flow. You know, I, I wasn't thinking about anyone when I wrote. Like, I wasn't thinking about, oh, how is this going to be received? Who's, how, how are people, what are they going to think of me if I write this? I, none of that crossed my mind. And it, did, it finally started clicking into place. There were two moments. One, when my mom got her first copy of it. Oh, <laughs> She hadn't read it. She hadn't read it. And my mom reads every single one of my books. And this one she hadn't read. And so she didn't read it until it came out as a finished book. And that was when I'm like, oh, God. This <laughs> 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 one has parts in it. Oh, God. The parts. What's she going to think? So, so that was the first implication. And then the second was when I um, just when the, the first book signing that I did where Basically, I was verbally attacked by a bunch of African professors. Oh, lovely. That was, I was like, oh, what have I written here? What have I gotten myself into? I just That was the first time it dawned on me. I'm like, oh, God, this is where the, the, the storm or the SHIT hits the fan. Because after that, it was that was when I started getting the hate letters for the first time for anything I've ever written. Oh, wow. So, you know, I didn't think about that when I wrote, when I wrote it. I was just speaking what I felt was the truth. You know, and I was speaking in my, not in my own voice, well, in a whole, as a whole, you know, I was addressing certain issues and, and how I felt about certain issues. And I didn't think about, um, you know, the repercussions of those actions. And I'm glad I didn't, because I think it would have I... affected the way I wrote it. Well, one of those issues was, was weaponized rape, which I actually never heard about until I heard about it from you and your... Uh, forward to the novel. And I could see where that could be controversial on the one hand, and on the other hand, just strikes... On the, on the one hand, it's the most obscene thing you can imagine, and on the yeah. other hand, you can kind of see where it comes from. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. well, when I first read about it, I, um, I just was taken, utterly taken aback. Like, I couldn't even think straight for a while, because I'm like, this is genetic warfare. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it is. It's genetic Science warfare. Concept. Yeah, exactly. And I'm like, how genius is that? And how evil is that? You know, and so I knew I wanted to dialogue with that that issue. When I wrote th that specific scene in Who Fears Death, I knew I wanted to dialogue with that issue. So um, I, you know, but but if I had thought about I, th the whole topic of female or Gen female genital mutilation or female circumcision, whatever you want to call it, is highly controversial in itself. Mm. And it's always been something that I, I see both sides of the arguments. And I see that unless it's, be unless it's handled properly, it will continue. I mean, un as a whole, it should stop. And, um, but it has to be done in a, I don't know, it's just, you got you to look at it in, in different way. You got to look at the whole issue as opposed to just... Um, in a very simplistic way. But yeah, in terms of weaponized rape. The people are going to be a little bit surprised when you say you can see both sides of the argument. 
I mean, I understand mm -hmm. you, you, you understand the importance of, of, uh, of certain kinds of African traditions, which probably American or Canadian writers don't, because there have been a couple of other uh, novels. There's one by Candace Jane Dorsey that deals with clitorectomy, and none of them mm -hmm. seem to have that dual perspective, but um, how, how can you defend it even from the point of view of tradition and folklore and belief? Well, it's it is what it is. First of all, I mean it it, it it is a tradition, okay? And 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 that's what. And I've been accused. I remember when I first wrote that scene because I, I workshopped it in a, a fiction writing workshop during my PhD program at um, at the University of Illinois in Chicago. And I remember some of my fellow students accusing me of being pro female circumcision, which I find or extremely being apologists, at least, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And really. I, my whole thing is, I feel like it needs to be abolished, but at the same time, you can't just go into a culture and be like, you know, we know nothing about you. We don't care to know anything about you. We're complete foreigners. We have no respect for who you are. We just think you're doing something wrong and you need to stop it. That's not mm -hmm. a way to treat a group of people at all. That's not realistic and that's not going to get you your result. <laughs> you know, no, one, no one's going to listen to you if you don't respect them. Um, so really, when you go into a foreign tradition or a foreign culture, you go in there holding your hat in your hand and you shut up. <laughs> you shut mm -hmm. up, you listen to what they have to say, uh, consider what they have to say, and then you bring forth your argument and you, you, you bring forth your argument with them on, a, uh, on a, an equal level. Like you see them as human beings and you see their practices as human equivalent practices to yours because no group of people is free of, of um, violence or discrimination against women. No group of people. So I think that's what I mean by we have to see the whole picture here. You can't just go in there and say you're wrong and you're wrong when, when your own house is a mess too. Sure. So yeah. Well I mean you get, um, you get, this is something that everybody has noted about your work. You talked about you do have a dual perspective that most people don't have. I mean uh, in, in Akata Witch, you've got a character who sounds a little bit like you. I mean, a character who basically grows up in America, and she has the American assumptions, but she's also dealing with what it's like to move back, um, you know, to her ancestral homeland, and she obviously is conflicted about that. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, I mean, she's she's a little like me, but she's a little different. She does speak Igbo fluently, which I do not. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, she's she's younger, you know, she she's... She grows up in New York, and then at the age of nine, she moves back to Nigeria. So this is three years later. So she's kind of, it's a different, a different upbringing. But yeah, the whole dual perspective, I think, gives me a, a unique insight into these, these cultural conflicts. Because I can see, I, I have, I guess I could say I have allegiance to both, both, you know, the Western culture and an African culture. You know, and uh -huh. I have a love affinity. I have an, a love and affinity for both equally you know so therefore one is not going to dominate the other so therefore i think i can see things with a clearer eye than um you know than most people so i think i bring that to the table too and, and i've had these inner conflicts about about culture you know um uh -huh. i'm i'm Igbo. my parents are Igbo, and and Igbo culture is highly patriarchal highly but yet and, and i consider myself a staunch feminist but I'm also mm. proud of Ebo. So it's like, I'm used to having those, I'm used to fighting those battles and addressing those issues and being honest about them. 
I remember once we talked about uh, the uh, about trying to correct in some ways, or at least give a perspective on the way science fiction and fantasy has traditionally dealt with Africa, which is not impressive, essentially. So on the one hand, I can completely understand the need for an African perspective. On the other hand, and I think you've written about this, and forgive me if you haven't, because I know you and I have talked about it, your father's funeral was problematical, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, it, it's just, uh, I wouldn't say problematic. Well, it, it was traditional. There were, it had traditional aspects to it right. that, uh, that, yeah, that, that, that go against my American grain. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> or go, you know, go against the feminist grain to some extent. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah. And, and they're hard to resolve and, and, but I understand the tradition. There, huh, there's certain tradi- there's certain traditions um, in Igbo culture that I feel are not good for women. And and when it comes to funeral rites, when a man dies, that's boy, that's a pit of snakes in itself. So um, and I got to see some of that. Yeah, we should parenthetically explain to people that even though you yourself grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, your father's funeral was in Nigeria. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. so it, was, it was like your first experience with a uh, traditional Nigerian funeral, uh, having this dual perspective. Yeah. Well, I, I've, I've, well, it's my first experience being in. I mean, I, I've been to Nigerian funerals before, but this is like the first time I was in the position that I'm in as a child of um, the person who passed, and right. um, so it was like my yeah. So. I had read about it. I'd read about these practices and, and I'd known about like other, other people's um, mothers who have gone through some of the, some of the traditions I'd heard about it, you know, we, mm-hmm. but this is like the first time I got to witness it and see that sometimes those things that, that you, you rail against so much when you find yourself in the position where you have to deal with it, sometimes you have to just deal with it. And because that's, the tradition, and that was one of the things that I found really upsetting, because I, mm-hmm. I always like to I like to fight things immediately, but like being in a situation where you can't really, or it's not really worth fighting it, because the, the situation is so painful and difficult. Is that, that was an interesting experience? I'll say that. Right. I'm curious, how much of what you're doing with your work do you feel is about trying to? Talk about this a different perspective of Africa and open it up to people in the Western world who are so ill-informed. I mean, I have to say, I finished reading A Carter Witch last night, and I was tweeting about wanting uh, an audiobook of it. And, as much, <laughs> yeah. and, and one of the reasons for it, I'll be completely honest, was I wanted to hear the voices, because yeah. the book is not set in Africa. It's set mm-hmm. in Nigeria, it's in a part of Nigeria. And Nigeria isn't just a bad email address. It's a complex, rich culture and all those sorts of things. So how much of what you're trying to do through these books is to create a more complex, rich, informed discussion for the for, for, for people who are encounter the books? Yeah, um, I think that's that's a large part of what I, I try to do. Because, I mean, one of the reasons why I started writing this kind of stuff science fiction, fantasy, whatever, and it's set in Nigeria or, uh, or parts of Africa, 
in the future or the present. Um, I tend not to write about the past, but um, it is because when I was, I wasn't seeing the Africa. We, we know that Africa is a big, diverse place, but I'm using it as I'm generalizing now. I was, I wasn't seeing the Africa that I had grown up seeing, and the Africa that I had grown up seeing was. Yes, it has its traditional sides and all of that, but it was also technologically advanced, you know, and it was and it, and it wasn't just a place of war and disease and 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 famine, you know, it wasn't a place of of always having political strife. There are people who laugh there. <laughs> there are marriages <laughs> there and, and there are like uh, petty fights and arguments and and just normal things there. And I wasn't seeing that. In um, in books, and I wanted to see that. I wanted to I wanted to write uh, for Akata, which I wanted to write a, a, a novel where you know you have the Nigerian kids or the African kids who get to go on the magical adventure. I wanted to write that because I wanted to see it. But at the same time, when I'm writing this, I know that I want to also I want the atmosphere to be there. I want it. I want to set the reader really there because I think that's just like a big part of what's missing. You know, there's this like too often it's like a sketch of of um, the African country or the city yeah. or whatever it's yeah. a sketch. It's, but I, I want to I want the I, I'm very big on atmosphere. I want the, I want to feel the humidity and I want I want to see I want to see the details, the, the lizard running up the tree, the, the green and orange lizard running up the tree, doing push ups and doing all kinds of stupid uh -huh. things. I want the smells, all of that, all of the detail in there. And also. It's a lot of fun to write that stuff. <laughs> it really is. It's fun. And so a lot of times I'm just having fun, and, and that comes out in the work. See, what I find myself doing reading the book was sitting there with my iPad, and I'm Googling uh, images of picture of tree types. Because, you know, like there's, there's two sort of enormous trees outside the entrance to uh, leopard walks. And yeah. you're going, well, hang on. They're not... <laughs> You're going to be pine trees, no matter what your imagination wants to automatically fill in. You need yes. to actually spend a little bit of time. And the few analogies we're given, you know, we ca it can't all come from out of Africa. Uh, mm -hmm. And it can't all come from Alexander McCall Smith kind of a thing. Uh, and so it's, it's getting those images. And this is why I say the audiobook particularly, the accents. I mean, why this, how would he or she sound compared to, and there's, no, we're not given a lot of reference, points of reference for this. And that's one of the things that's great about the book, I think. That does at least, I hope, I mean, it did for me, uh, provoke you to want to kind of go, okay, well, to, to get everything out of the book, I need to try to understand all of these various aspects of it. And, of course, then yes. hopefully, I guess that leads into reading your other books, reading Who Fears Death, seeing a more adult, more complicated picture of it all, and then being forced, well, being asked, I guess, to understand the complexity of the of these other cultures and also come to terms with this idea that you know Africa's a continent not a country yes <laughs> yes 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 it is a continent people come on um, yeah and one of the things that I find really difficult though is what do you explain and what don't you explain mm. because I don't want to write an anthropology book I'm not interested in writing an anthropology <laughs> book no you know, and if I were, I'd go pick up one. I'm not going to write one. So I don't want to have to stop 
and explain, okay, this is what a goosey soup tastes like and what it, what it, what's made, what it's made of, and all of that. So it's like sometimes it, it's difficult. I got to pick and choose what to explain and what not to explain. And then there are times where I'll be writing and I'll know that I don't want to explain that. I just don't want to explain. <laughs> you know? So I just throw it in there and you know, either the reader will go and Google it or yep. imagine something. <laughs> Whatever that something is, I'm fine with it. Yeah. So, just, uh, a, so it's a, just oh, yeah, a random thought. You know, you know who you sound like right now? You sound like Zora Neale Hurston. Uh, <laughs> because she was a trained anthropologist. I mean, she trained with Franz Boas. She knew how to record dialects and that sort of thing. And her attitude was when she was writing fiction, when she was writing something like Their Eyes Were Watching God, she thought, I'm not an anthropologist now. I'm a novelist, and I'm just recording this, and it's up to the reader to figure it out. Yes, yes. Well, I, found, I, I actually found, I found myself Googling and finding uh, audio samples of accents. Uh, just so that you, uh, Oh, go ahead. Well, I didn't want it all just to be a bad West Indian accent in my mind. That's okay. I, you know, I'm fine with that. It's like you can't have everything in one book. This is why we need more. Well, this is why we need more because it's like I can't. There's so much, and and in terms of the audio version of it, I I fret about that because mm. the accent would be so important. Yeah, it would be so important, and I don't know if there is anyone who could do it. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know if there is a, for Who Fears Death. We managed to get a. Um, a a reader who she knew how to do um, Indian accents, and so uh -huh. she was able to kind of shift and do a sort of accent for Onyesonga, which I thought she sounded more like Natiri from Avatar, which I'm fine <laughs> with. <laughs> I'm like, That's cool. I have to say, so, the parentheses though, did, did, I don't know, Nettie, did you ever listen to the audio book of Neil Gaiman's Anansi Boys? No, no, I, I've read it, but I haven't. Recorded. It's recorded by Lenny Henry, who's a, uh, a, a, a British comedian, a black British comedian, and he has the voices. I don't exactly know where Lenny Henry's background is, but I didn't understand entirely what was going on in that novel until I heard yeah. uh, at least a portion of his, his reading. It's a brilliant reading um, because it deals essentially with an African-American family in Florida, um, yeah. but, but the main character is British, and Lenny Henry has that voice himself. Mm-hmm. And it is very much a Caribbean-influenced accent. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I had the same experience. I mean, I'd read the novel, and I guess this is what, what made me think about um, uh, a Carter Witch, because I, I, I almost had managed, because you get so many default settings, and I, I know this is something that people talk about a lot these days, you get so many default settings that you can read through all of the characteristics in a text and ignore them. Yeah. You know, it, is yeah. it would be possible to read a Carter Witch as a Harry Potter book, if you if you yes. let yourself, yes. Uh, and to some degree, there were things that were in *A Nancy Boys* that I certainly overlooked until you heard this voice reading, and you're going, and you're going "Of course, this is how it's yes. got to sound and how it's got to be." And yes. so, yes. you know, I don't know whether there is a, frankly, a young Nigerian reader who who could read the book mm -hmm. and then give it the intonation and the the rhythm that it needs. To let someone like me pick up pick up on what's there. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Very true. Very true. I would love to hear the audio version of a Nazi voice because I think it would totally add to the experience of the story. And I'm going to look that up as soon as we as soon as Absolutely. we're done. 
I see exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Oh, man, yeah, that would work. That's well, Neil great. said it's his preferred text for the book. Really? Yeah. It is. Yeah. I didn't yeah. understand yeah. the book until I heard it. Yeah, for that reason. Uh, but, yeah. I, I think because everybody, you know, it's like it's a Neil Gaiman book. Neil Gaiman's an Englishman living in the United States. Where, you know, he starts mm -hmm. everywhere. Kind of thing. It's very Anglo-Saxon. And so it's mm -hmm. easy to just not point, not notice that the lead character is black. Yeah. Uh, for me, it was like I was reading it. And I kept having an inkling that he was black because I didn't catch on. Yeah. And I actually had to email him and ask him. <laughs> <laughs> it was interesting, a uh, piece of trivia. When I used to kid them both about this, but about a year before Nancy Boys came out, Peter Straub published Mr. X, which is about an African-American family living in southern Illinois. Both of those novels have the same characteristic. They never explain or make explicit that the main characters are, are black. Um, and in, in both cases a good chunk of readers never figured that out. Yeah. But see, if you hear the audio version, then it comes right out. Yeah. It would have yeah. to come right out. Interesting. Yes. Well, that kind of raises the question also, speaking of adaptations, um, that uh, I know you've been a champion. I'm sorry I'm blanking on the name of, of, uh, of the African director who's interested in, in, in doing Who Fears Death, but who did that wonderful short film that uh, you showed here in Chicago. What, what, why am I blanking on this? Come on, Nettie, help me here. Pumsy and the name of the Pumsy, director yes. is Marika Hiu. Right. And, yeah. and she is trying to get or has gotten funding to do an adaptation of Who Fears Death? We're working on, the, we're working on that right now. We're working on the, the, the main thing we're doing now is the screenplay. So that's what oh. we're slowly getting getting done and um that's been interesting because as i knew as i knew who fears death is not an easy novel to adapt to film why because well, it is so. heavy it's this there's so much story and, mm -hmm. and like not, you can't really take out much you can't and i knew it would be difficult because i mean who fears death started as a seven two it was two books there's a book one and a book two. It was over 700 pages. So, um, and and my agent looked at it and was like, okay, you're doing African science fiction. <laughs> and this is utterly unique and it's two books and it's long. I mean, we're not gonna be able to sell this. You gotta get this, you gotta get this shorter. So it took me two years to wheedle it down, taking out all of the, all of the, the weak words and combining the strong phrases. One word by word, it took me two years to do this, to get it down mm. to about 380 pages. And so now we have this condensed, I didn't change much of the plot at all. We have this condensed story that moves really fast and has few words. It's like, it's very, um, the, the prose is very sparse. So yeah. just think about that, it's heavy. So, the, so it's very dense. And now how do you turn that into a film? It's just it's like, a, it's not easy. It's not easy at all, so. So yeah, that's no. Let's talk about one of the things. One of the things you really need to do with real novels is to just turn them into miniseries. And it's too bad that the miniseries, yeah. as a form, hasn't done well. But uh, the, the, for example, good example, which is completely unrelated to anything we're talking about, uh, James M. Cain novel called Mildred Pierce, which was a mainstream kind of noir novel. Uh, it was made into a movie with Joan Crawford that has nothing to do with what's in the book at all. And about a year and a half ago, it was made into a miniseries on HBO with uh, yeah. Keith Winston. And suddenly you realize, okay, that's what the novel was about. 
<laughs> That's how I felt actually, and this is totally off topic too, um, the novel Things Fall Apart. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. It was made into a miniseries, 15-hour <laughs> miniseries. Oh, yeah, it's a, it's a Nigerian uh, miniseries, and it's very hard to find. You will not find a copy of it. I have a copy that <laughs> I got from Lagos. And, yeah, it wasn't until I watched the miniseries that I really got the novel, which I'm ashamed to say. The miniseries was excellent, and it really brought it all home. So it's in the same way. And, yeah, and my my dream with Hooters Death is for the, it to be a miniseries as opposed to just one film. I, I feel more comfortable with that. I think it lends itself more to that format. Mm. One of the things that struck me, though, because you were mentioning this larger context for it. And to get back to these two stories that you have in, in Year's Best anthologies, one of them, in, in Jonathan's anthology, The Book of Phoenix, suggests that there is a whole world behind uh, that sort of mystical, sacred book in, in, in um, Hoofer's Death. And the one which is in, no, oh, let me think, it's in uh, Gardner Dozois's anthology, Wahala, uh, mm-hmm. suggests there's a much larger backstory there, too, because Wahala seems to have all your stuff in it. It's got a far yeah. future Saharan desert. It's got a wind seeker. It's got a, um, uh, a shadow speaker. It's got Martians. It's got spaceships. It's like there's a, there's a lot more there you're not telling us. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Actually, both of those stories are special to me. Um, Wahala was, I had written a part two to the shadow speaker, and... Mm-hmm. Um, there's a whole story why that hasn't been published yet. There's a whole story behind that, but I won't even go into it. But I've written the part two to the shadow speaker. And when I wrote that, I tend to find out more about my worlds, the more novels I write about them. <laughs> and this, in this case, I learned a lot more about the world of um, Zara and the shadow speaker. They, they, that, and, and Wahala was actually something that it was embedded in that novel. And, you know, so it's, it's slowly that yeah. whole world is, Slowly opening up. Yes, definitely. And um, yes, the Martians. Oh, uh, we see more of the Martians <laughs> in the oh, yeah, So, um, and then the Book of Phoenix. Oh, yeah, that's already expanded because I mean, I've written, I wrote more of that. <laughs> that that's going to be a novel. That's definitely no. That is a novel. I'm like 180 pages into that already. This so. is going to be your Silmarillion, right? <laughs> It's it's I don't know what it is it's it's uh it's weird I will say that it's weird but, and I knew well here's the, here's the thing that's interesting because if you follow up on some of the worlds that are implied in Zara the Windseeker and the Shadow Speaker uh, mm-hmm. uh you're aren't you coming up against the same problem that Tolkien came up against because he'd written this children's book called The Hobbit and he realized that in order to expand and fold out that book he couldn't do it as children's books anymore yeah. I'm not worried about that. <laughs> I just, you just write the thing, and then whatever it is, it is. Because, I, like, I'm working on some. I don't know what is this a children? Is this a young adult novel, or is this an adult? I, I have no idea. I'm just writing it, and whatever it is is what it is. Like, I can't. Because it's like it is. It's the, the, the this world is kind of slowly fleshing its way. It's getting bigger and bigger. And parts of right. that, you know, there are young, there are young protagonists, and there are older protagonists, and then there are things that have no age in it. So it's it's <laughs> all over the place. Yeah, yeah. And isn't the Book of Phoenix going to be a set of short stories uh, as well? Yeah, it's uh, I wrote I wrote uh, four 
it's a four-part short story series that's going to be published by in uh, Subterranean Magazine, and it's just a continuation of the Book of Phoenix. It's four parts, and then when I was done with those four parts, I wasn't done. <laughs> so, just, so will, will that end up in the novel or separate from the novel? It will end up in the novel. Yeah. That's just the beginning. You're just seeing part. It's like the short stories published, and then the story, the, the subsequent stories are published. And then the novel is going to be published. So, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's interesting. The other I genre, which, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh no, I wasn't expecting to continue with it. It just um, then I, I just looked at the Book of Phoenix and I'm like, that is so not done. That's not done. And I, <laughs> I was going to say the other genre which you've which which you've shown you have shown some interest in uh, and sort of an approach avoidance thing. Uh, is, is, is horror, because the story you had, and if I'm, okay, I forgive, both of you forgive me if I'm wrong about this, but wasn't the story in Eclipse basically a horror yes. story? Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. the, the, oh, you're talking about On the Road, right? Yeah, yeah. Yes, right, that's the title, I couldn't think of the title. <sighs> it's, it's getting to be nighttime. <laughs> 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 oh, boy, that story was scary. Um, yeah, um, I think I could write horror if I weren't such a scaredy cat because that was the first <laughs> that was the first horror story I'd ever written and it's been the last so far because when I wrote that story I got so scared I was terrified of that I was scared of my own creatures I come outside and I would be looking up the road for the road monster but um, there's something there was another novel that I that I was working on um, that's set in Nigeria and it it's that road monster shows up again. So it's like, um, yeah, we haven't seen the last of that, that, that thing. I think, um, if, but I can't admit, I don't know. I have to, I don't know. When it comes to writing horror, I don't know. <laughs> it's scary. <laughs> I think I could do it, but it's, it's, I'm, I'm scared. Even now I'm scared. Oh dear. We didn't mean to upset you. I mean, no. <laughs> God help us from pointing out your own stories to yourself. I know. <laughs> but, but then maybe that's why it works. It's, if it's scary to you, there's a greater chance it'll be scary to us as well. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Let me ask you something I'm curious about and have been ever since I first, in fact, first heard it was coming out. How did Who Fears Death end up coming out from Door? It, it doesn't strike me as a Door book at all. Yeah, um, well, it's funny because I think... The reason why I had turned my eye on Daw was because of the Otherland series. I love the Otherland series, yeah. Ted Williams. Yeah. And, um, you know, that was set in South Africa. And, um, you know, it, it, it was different. And so I figured, you know, well, why And I liked, uh, you know, Pat Rothfuss's novel. And mm -hmm. that, was, that was great. And, and so, you know, I felt like they might be open to to what I was doing. And so yeah. I, showed, I showed or... I had, I think it was, um, how did this happen? Okay, I think it was Pat who gave Betsy a nudge, mm -hmm. and then we sent it to, to Betsy, and once Betsy read it, she loved it. Oh, good. You know, she, she didn't just like it, she loved it. And you always want an editor who loves <laughs> the work that you created. I mean, and she got it. She, she got, like, every angle of Who Fears Death. She got it. She didn't look at Who Fears Death and think, ooh, this is really 
dark and new. I'm scared of it. And maybe I just might not put it, I just might not read it because it's dealing with dark subject matter. No, she saw it as an uplifting novel. Even though it takes you into dark places, she saw it as uplifting. She she just got every single angle of it. So it was like it was it was fate. It really was because she was the perfect editor um, for for the book. Even though it might not necessarily be something that Daw does. Well, nothing wrong with change. <laughs> well, no, not at all. Uh, I would go further. It sort of says it goes to show that their editorial taste is much more complex than we might have thought. And you can see that flowing into the Saladin Armored book they did this year. And, yes. Uh-huh. yes exactly. so, which, which is great. And I'm delighted to see that she's on the Hugo ballot for best editor and have my, my, my fingers crossed for her. I'm also, I'm also bemused since we're talking about publishing things. How did you end up writing a Tinkerbell book? Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> well, um, what happened was I was reading the Tinkerbell books before I even started writing it. <laughs> okay, I, I was in the library one day and I saw one of the Tinkerbell books. I'm like, oh, what's up with that? And so I checked one out and I read it in like one hour and I was hooked. So I read like six of them. <laughs> <laughs> they were good. They were good. Okay, yeah. they have plucky, you know, plucky female characters, you know, who all work together. And then the world of Tinkerbell is full of foliage and magic. You know, it's very much like the world of Zara. Yeah. Very much like it. So, and I, I immediately recognized that. And so I was reading these things and enjoying them. And then one day I thought, well, um, there's Iridessa, the black fairy. I like, I don't see too many stories about her. Let me write her. And so then I just, um, I told my agent and, and Don was like, oh, let's see what we can do. And so then, then we, we approached the Disney folks and they wanted to see, first they read Zara, they love Zara. And they're yeah. like, oh, okay, totally, come up with something. And then the rest is history. So yeah, it started with my own interest. Okay. Well, no, I just asked because I mean, I've got two young daughters myself. And mm-hmm. so that's how I was aware of the Tinkerbell stuff. And we'd seen the movies and all that yes. sort of thing. And I was like, and then I saw this one going like, really? How did that happen? Yeah, because it's not, you, you, you don't, with, with no disrespect, you don't figure Disney sort of picking up the phone, calling people out of the blue going, you want to write a, a, a Tinkerbell book? And you're going, what? <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, these things don't don't happen. They, it's like um, things will only happen if you make them happen. That's yeah. how I see it. You know, yeah. Disney certainly, yeah, they're not going to immediately think, oh, let's have Nanny do one. That's not something that's going to cross their mind because like, you know, a lot of times things have to be obvious for people to do them. Mm. And if you really, if you look at my own interests and what I write and what I do and what I like, it makes complete sense that oh. I would write, that I would be interested in writing a Tinkerbell, uh, a Tinkerbell book. But, you know, sometimes mm. you have to present, you have to kind of yeah. just, uh, you know, to nudge people a bit. So, yeah, that was that was me. <laughs> You'll both be pleased to learn I'm reading Nalo Hopkinson's first young adult novel, The Chaos, and there's a fair old Tinkerbell in it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have read, I read The Chaos, and I thought it was excellent, and I, I actually wrote a review for the LA Times on The Chaos, oh, so that should be coming out soon, and yes, I, I was waiting for that book forever. Come on. Yeah, that One, Nalo, and two, it's young adult. Heck yeah, I'm there. So, yeah. Uh-huh. And I have to ask, since we're sort of just—I'm just going through questions across my mind. Have we seen the last of the world of Akata Witch? Oh no! 
<laughs> I didn't think so. I wondered. Uh, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm about in about six or eight weeks. I'm doing a podcast, with, uh, another podcast that I'm appearing on, where we talk about books that we've read. And one of the books we're going to read for, in fact, that I read last night for it is a Carter Witch. And so I've got to think about what I'm going to say. I'm almost tempted to ask you to give me cheat notes. But <laughs> but what occurred to me is with the way the book ends, it, it, it almost feels like it only makes sense if there's another book or set yeah. of books to follow on, but there's nothing yeah. public about there being any more. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Akata, which when I wrote it, uh, I kind of knew it was, a, it was the part one. I knew yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, so, and yeah. I, I don't typically do sequels. Yeah. I don't. I like doing sequels. I just, I have so many interests and I'm all over the place that by the time I'm done with one thing, I'm on to something else. <laughs> I'm probably on to something else at the same time as doing the other thing. So um, I'm not one to normally write sequels, but when I wrote Akata Witch, I knew it was a sequel. I knew it. I knew it. And then, and then I was, I dreaded for a long time, like, oh God, at some point I'm going to have to <laughs> <laughs> write the sequel. What am I going to do? So it's but been it, a few it, years. Yeah. Is it really oh, a sequel, though, that we're talking about? Because I was thinking one of the things I'm going back, I'm going back to your uh, doctoral dissertation defense. I mean, you know, is The Lord of the Rings really a sequel to The Hobbit? I mean, if you no. open up a world and explore it and go more deeply into it, that kind of goes beyond what the word sequel implies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, that idea that you just said gives me great comfort. <laughs> 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 it really does, because I like that. I like the idea of just... Uh, fleshing out the world that much more as opposed to like a direct sequel. If I do, when I, because I, I will do a sequel for Akata Witch, I know that. Yeah. Um, it's not going to be like, oh, in the next day, you know, it's not going to be like what? that. I want some time. And who knows? I haven't, well, I haven't started writing it yet. I'm hoping to start it uh, this summer. Yeah. And I don't know if it's going to be from the same character's point of view I don't know if it's from another point of view of a char another character's point of view. I don't know if it's going to be ten years from now or a year later. I don't know, and I reserve the right to pick what I want to do. Okay. As yeah. I, I, I think I, uh, to me the thing that um, highlighted that that was really necessary was the amount of space in the book that's given to the actual uh, concluding conflict with Black Hat. Mm -hmm. Which is quite mm -hmm. quite concise in the book. It's only a small yep. portion of it, which to me mm -hmm. highlighted that it, that it wasn't in many ways really the point of the book at all. Exactly. You know? Exactly. And a lot of reviewers kind of just d missed that. Yeah. Um, that wasn't. It's just like that was on purpose. It was completely. <laughs> on you know, it's like, oh, does every book have to have a grand finale where it's like grand and it's so obvious it's grand and that's where the crooks of the story take place? No. I, I wanted it to be, this was about her growth. Yeah, okay, this yeah. wasn't a black hat, you know, and, and oh, is she going to vanquish him or not? You know, he, I don't want to give too much away, but yeah. Oh. So um, that was completely, completely intentional. I didn't want it to follow the usual, yeah. the usual arc of story. Right. Because, yeah, I mean, in many ways, what I felt was, again, without giving out any details, that the real conclusion to the book was the couple of chapters that happened after that. Yeah. Yes. You know, yes. Uh, and what that meant in character terms, I guess, for mm -hmm. for Sunny. So yes, mm -hmm. but that also sort of said to me that there is a bigger other thing that ha that, that that follows that is pendant to it. You know. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I'm glad to hear that that's going to happen. 
I also have to say yeah. it's a gorgeous book. Just a gorgeous Thank book. Thank you. Thank you. I love I love the the cover was great. I was so worried about the cover and uh, Sharon really came through and so did Jillian Tamaki who did the illustration. It's awesome, it's perfect and Shoo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got to talk to Sharon about that because I I've still not seen the cover of it. I have an arc of it here. Which oh, it's gorgeous. I mean, it's it's, it's, oh. it's a gorgeous book. I have to say, it's one of those books that if I walked into a store, I would buy it for the cover. <laughs> and that's what oh. Sharon wanted. She yeah. wanted to she wanted it to be a book that people wanted to buy, the physical book, you know, as yeah. opposed to an ebook. She wanted to create that where the book itself is a work of art. So mm. I think I think she succeeded. So I guess one of the obvious sort of interview we don't really do interviewee type stuff too much, but one of the obvious interviewee type questions is, from the point of view of the world at large, what's the next thing from Nettie? Well, I'm working on several things. Well, first of all, um, May 2nd, I have my first comic coming wow. out. Cool. Yeah, it's going to be cool. Uh, I did a, it's a short. It's, um, it's going to be part of the Mystery in Space anthology for DC Comics, yeah. Virgo, and, um, yeah. So it's it's supposed to be you know everything is supposed to be about space and, yeah. and like basically mysteries in space and uh, the story that I have in there is a Zara story so okay. I'm really excited about that oh. yeah yeah it is it is it's it's short um, the illustrator is Michael Kaluta and oh, yeah. he he did an excellent job I mean this thing is beautiful colors <laughs> creatures it's like so netty it's so cool so that's the the next thing that I have um, coming out in terms of Novels that I'm working on, like I said, I'll be working on Akata Witch 2. I'll be starting that soon. Um, and then I'm also working on uh, the Book of Phoenix novel. And then um, I finished another one, a mystery novel that I will keep quiet. It's an adult novel. <laughs> and I've just written a lot. You know, I, I have yeah. a lot of stuff, a lot of, a lot of things going on and probably something that I'm really forgetting right now. So, but yeah, I have a lot of, a lot of things in the work. The the Tinkerbell book should be coming out later this year. I need to get the exact date on that. So yeah. I'm, I'm very, very busy. <laughs> Your career took off amazingly well. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking, I, well, I know that before you finished your doctorate, Zara the Windseeker was already out, which is unusual mm -hmm. for, for a doctoral candidate. But still, yeah. uh, it's yeah. been fairly astonishing since then. It's just done one thing after another. Uh, oh, and I know yeah. the we should mention the University of Illinois at Chicago gave, did did some honorary thing for you last year, didn't they? Yeah, I think it was last year. Uh, it was two years ago where I had the. It was a special recognition award, which was really cool. Yeah. Okay, which means you're not old enough to get an honorary doctorate, but yeah, you know, we'll we'll pay attention to you anyway. Um, <laughs> one of the things. Okay, as long as we're at the uh, question of awards again, one of the things which you generated a lot of a lot of discussion about. A few months ago was the was the actual physical object that represented the World Fantasy Award, yes. uh, <laughs> namely a racist named H.P. Lovecraft. <laughs> yeah, that was fun. Um, <laughs> it was one of those things where okay, the way it happened was like I was having a, I was showing a friend of mine my World Fantasy Award, and mm. I mean I I know of Lovecraft. I've read. Um, some of his work. I'm not a big yeah. fan or anything like that. Um, and I knew he had some issues, you know, <laughs> with, <laughs> uh, 
black people. I knew that. I just didn't know the extent. And so I was showing the my award to a friend of mine, and then he's like, "Oh my God, is that is that HP Lovecraft?" I'm like, "Yeah." And he's like, "What are they doing?" I'm like, "What is your problem?" What are you and then next thing you know, he's dragging me to the internet and showing me that poem, <laughs> The Creation mm. of a Nigger, I think it was called. And uh, my jaw fell over. <laughs> well, yeah. And it was like one of those moments where I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, I knew I could not not say anything. I had to speak up. I had to, because that's just unacceptable. It's just unacceptable. Mm. So... Um, I get. I'm always better at speaking my thoughts on paper, on paper, like in writing. So mm -hmm. I did exactly that. I went and I wrote this. I wrote something on how I felt and and what, and you know, I, I kind of shed some light on the issue and and I got all of my points in there without blowing up and sweating and <laughs> cursing. <laughs> it's a valid so, point. I mean, and, and and Jonathan and I both have. I'm looking at my statue right now. Uh, unfortunately, Gayon Wilson makes a caricature out of it in the first place. Uh, but you're absolutely right. I mean, if you look at not just that poem, but look at the story of his called The Horror at Red Hook. Red Hook. And it's not it's not simply African-Americans. It's Greeks, Italians, Jews, just about everybody that, you know, that he didn't like. And yet somebody, I was at a panel at the International Conference on the Fantastic, which, Nettie, you have to come to one of these days. And somebody mentioned an anthology of Lovecraft stories by people of color, by Caribbean writers, by African-American writers. And I thought, great, somebody's putting together an anthology of, sto of Lovecraft stories only by people Lovecraft would hate. <laughs> and in a sense, and in a yeah. sense, isn't it great that the award goes to someone that Lovecraft would not have looked at twice on the street? I mean, isn't the best revenge mm. using his image to honor who fears death? <laughs> it is, but at the same time, um, I think Onisomu would protest. <laughs> yes, I think so. <laughs> I, I don't know, I, but I saw it as a bigger issue than just um, about yeah. Lovecraft. It's just that whole issue of what happens when, uh, you know, you're, you, you, well, you know, when you receive an award that is in the name of somebody who has some problems, what happens when, you, let's say your favorite author is so-and-so, and then uh, let's say Norman Mailer, for example, and I think I mentioned this in my post, and then you find out he's a yeah. horrible sexist. What do you do with that? And I, and, I, and I kind of felt like it was a teachable moment. You know, it was a moment mm -hmm. where we can have some dialogue about, about race within the exactly. genre. I just thought it was necessary, yeah. All these people who grew up loving Roald Dahl don't want to know what he was like. Yeah. No, no. Yeah. I mean, I, that was I, another... Yeah, sorry. Oh, go, go ahead. I was going to say, I mean, I only really became aware of Lovecraft's racism because I've only dipped into his work any, uh, at all. Uh, probably six months before this happened because uh, Subterranean published a Mark Laidlaw story called The Man Who Followed Lovecraft. Yeah. Or the Boy Who Followed Lovecraft. And it is. It, it, it overtly smacks you in the face with Lovecraft's racism. Mm. And that was like, really? I mean, because I have the... I mean, I've got, no, let's say, no affection for Lovecraft particularly. I have this statuette. I don't see it as being a statuette of Lovecraft, or, you know, of Lovecraft particularly. I saw it as being the Royal Fantasy Award, which in itself is a very cool thing. Mm -hmm. And it is, it, it is a conflicting thing to sit there and go, well, 
do you look and say the current appearance of the statuette is part of the tradition of the award and that there is a thing about, I guess, uh, slapping Lovecraft in the face by looking at it differently? Or do you say that now they should, you know, they must change the, 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 the appearance of the award? I mean, I'm not really sure how you progress from there. Yeah. I, my thing is I just want to see uh, dialogue. Yeah. That's my main thing. I'm like, I just like seeing people acknowledge that there is that side of things as opposed to just glossing over it or ignoring it and acting like it's not there. Yeah. That's, that's I agree. I, I think that dialogue is, is hugely important. One of the examples, I mean, for, uh, apart from the question of, of what Hugo Gernsback's attitudes might have been in the Hugo Award, one of the uh, candidates for this year's John W. Campbell Memorial Award is Karen Lord. Yeah. who I adore. I mean, I like her writing. I like her. And Campbell, I don't think, would have looked at her twice on the street. Yeah. But that's, a, that's a hard thing to say as well, because, well, okay, he did live into the 1970s. I mean, Lovecraft died in, what, 1937. 1937. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I don't, I'm not going to even attempt to suggest there's an apology, but, but when you say that sort of somebody wouldn't look at you in the street, maybe 30 years later, who knows what might have happened. It doesn't change how you react to the award, but it's a you've got to be careful saying things like they wouldn't look at you in the street because you don't know how they would react to you today. Just yeah, exactly. it's, it's, yeah, it's 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 a complex issue, and I don't think there's any right answer for it. Mm. But like I said, I just think it needs to be addressed because I think yes. a lot of people have been aware of Lovecraft's issues until I brought it up, mm. you know, and then. <laughs> oh, you know, what? And then some people are like, oh, I knew about that, and there's nothing wrong with that. I'm like, yes, there is something wrong with that. <laughs> you know, so it's like, I just, once we, I think once the dialogue is there, I think whatever needs to be done about the statue, be it stay, uh, keep the image, change the image, tweak the image, whatever, I think that will naturally happen once there is that, that awareness. Yeah. And I think the awareness is there now, so I'm not... I'm not too worried either way. No, I think you did your job. And as a matter of fact, I did not know about that poem until um, mm -hmm. until until you called attention to it. I mean, I, I, I'd seen some of Lovecraft's poetry. But, you know, Lovecraft's poetry is the kind of thing you get about three stanzas in and figure, okay, I've done this. Um, <laughs> I just didn't want to read it. So I never got to that one. <laughs> yeah, I... I just yeah, I'd never gotten to it either. But when I saw it, I was shocked. I'm like, what? What even possessed him? It, it, it was shocking. I agree. Um, Bad day. God. But you know that goes back a little bit to what we've talked about that we started talking about a, a bit ago, uh, and that is not just racism, but when you talk about the depiction of Africa or Africans in fantasy and science fiction, uh, prior to, I don't know, prior to you maybe. Uh, you, you're dealing with everything from H. Ryder Haggard to Edgar Rice Burroughs to uh, maybe some of Mike Resnick's stories. Uh, maybe even um, uh, Ian McDonald had a couple of novels set in Africa. Mm. And in and, and all the sense, there's this, in, in, in many of these works, there's overt racism of some sort in, um, in Haggard and Burroughs. There's a kind of liberal, enlightened attitude, I suppose, in the case of. Uh, McDonald and Resnick, but none of it feels authentic. None of it yeah. feels to be an African perspective. Yeah. And, and you could say the same thing about Hemingway, for that matter. Yeah. And, I, I, well, I don't know. I just feel like um, 
this was what made me want to start writing this stuff. <laughs> well, yeah. I don't know. I think there is something to be said when when you have like a direct connection to the the people you're writing about, like a direct. In other words, the the way you depict these people is going to reflect on you. Like, no, it's not about, oh, I'm interested in this place, let me write about it. No, it's like a stake where the way you depict them is, like, going to reflect on how your family is viewed, how you were viewed, uh-huh. how, like, so I think there's something, there's something to that, you know? And and, and I, that's, I've been trying to figure out what a definition is to, is, do you call that African science fiction? Because African science fiction could mean just somebody setting the, the story in Africa. Mm. That's not the same yeah. kind of, that's not what I'm talking about. Um, I'm talking about something more, I, I don't like the word authentic, because uh, authentic has, you know, its own its sure. own issues, but like something yeah. uh, uh, that, bu- that bubbles up from within. That's what we're lacking. Mm. That's what we're lacking. And, and I think it does have to do with the state. Like, what do you have at stake when you're writing about these people? Are you writing about yourself? Are you writing about something that's going to reflect directly on? I think that has an impact in how you write about this. Yeah, I think it's true. Well, there, there's a long and, and honorable and rich tradition of American of, of African fantasy fiction, or what we would call as fantasy fiction. But one of the things I'm thinking of Amos Tutuolo and people like that. Uh, mm-hmm. But you always wonder if those writers are writing it as fantasy fiction or if yeah. they're writing it as a kind of cultural fiction that this is simply yeah. recognizing the beliefs that we come from. Right. Exactly. See, that's there's a see there's a difference. It's it's um it's a it's a thin line, but there is a line. You know, like like there was a a science fiction uh, African science fiction story. I think I can't remember what it's called. I think it was Jazz and Palm Wine, something like that. And that's supposed to be the first African science fiction story. But when you read it, it feels more like a political, yeah. um, just like yeah. a political kind of thing. It's not direct science fiction. It's hard to explain. But um, so it's like a satire more than a science fiction story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of like that. But the same thing happens with Eastern European science fiction. It may be terrific, mm-hmm. but most of it is really political satire. Yeah, yeah, where it's not the... Well, well, I do wonder. I mean, one of the things that science fiction is supposed to do, in theory, is give us, I guess, vision, you know, visions of possible futures. I mean, not realistic predictions, but it's a, you know, it is a manifestation of cultural views of possible futures and what they aspire to or what they imagine or whatever else. Yeah. And, and we see less of that from non-Western European backgrounds. And that's a really unfortunate thing. And you do wonder what science fiction, as we understand it to be, would be if it came from those places. Certainly. You know, what is a Nigerian, for want of a better example, uh, projection of a future that they are part of? And I think it would be a wonderful thing for us to get to see more of that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but one thing we also have to remember is that the the genre of science fiction is a fairly Western mm. Uh, yeah, it's, it's it's a Western genre, so it started in the West, yes. right? So so therefore, you know, other non-Western cultures. That's why we're not seeing it. Because I I've been thinking about this a lot lately. Like, why is there 
basically no African science fiction, I mean, or very little of it, so little of it. And I think that's part of it. It's a, it's a first and foremost, it's a Western tradition. But that doesn't mean that it, you know that there isn't going to be any crossover. Now, how do how how are we going to start seeing more African science fiction? One, I think that's going to start happening very soon. That that is clear to me. I think the I think the the interest is there, the want is there. That it, that's going to happen. But um, I think that once I, I think that okay, so it, it's a Western a Western genre, right? That's that was created in the West. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, the, but so the the stories that were that are told are from a Western perspective, and so those stories kind of make you know Africans read. And I'm speaking about Africans in a general term on purpose. Fine, I'm generalizing. Africans may read these these stories and not see reflections in themselves, and therefore feel okay. We have nothing to do with this genre. So I think it's like been a, a vicious cycle yeah. that's been repeating itself over and over again, and and at some point that cycle has to be broken. And I think that people. Um, like myself, writers like myself, writers like Lauren Bucus and um, um, who else is there? Uh, you know, there, there's other, other other writers that are that are coming up are going to help change that. Yeah. You know, and I feel very strongly. And if you notice, the writers that are writing it are the ones that are already on the fringes and that have a lot of exposure to Western cultures. You know, right. so I think it's. Point. At some point, you're going to see the ones who don't have that much exposure of Western cultures start writing this stuff too. It's going to be like a gradual, a gradual effect. Yeah. Well, a novel which you should take a look at, Nettie, is the new Alistair Reynolds novel, Blue Remembered Earth, which essentially assumes that uh, Africa becomes the center of technology by about the third, twenty-third uh, century or so, and it, it does that in a way which is not meant to. I don't think. I don't think it's looked to, to. I don't think it's meant to look politically correct. Occasionally, you see writers who will say, "Okay, we're going to talk about a future Africa as a technological," but he's he sort of worked it out in a way which I find very convincing. Um, and yet, uh, you're you're dealing with a British writer looking at Africa from a um, from a from a, a British point of view. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean that's. Yeah, that's that's definitely a possibility. But I mean, really, I, I just want to see some African authors mm. get it. I want to see African authors do this too. Now, there was a massive novel which you recommended to me a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. and it's like a, a 900-page novel. Do you remember what you're talking about here? Uh, was, from, it, was it was it or is it me or or, or Jonathan? You were no you. Uh, oh, that he was, me. Oh, uh, well, did, was it a uh, Wizard of the Crow? Yes, exactly, Wizard yeah. of the Crow. And that's, that struck me as something which I never got a copy of at all, as being something that looks like a, a blueprint for a kind of African science fiction. Yes, very much so. I, first of all, that's my favorite novel. Really? <laughs> and so, yes, I love that novel. I love it for, for exactly what you just said, and because it's just like, it's an example of storytelling so it has everything that I love about storytelling, uh-huh. all in one novel. And I and I met him um, recently. I met him what two weeks ago in person, and I almost passed out. And that was cool. But, <laughs> Just two weeks ago? Wow. Yes, I I was sweating and like overwhelmed because I'm just oh my god. It was one of those moments. I don't have too many moments like that where I'm just like oh. That was one of them. And I remember a few. I had exchanged some emails. The author is Ngugi Watiango. And I exchanged a few emails oh. with him, and um, I was trying to convince him to write a science fiction novel. 
And he had said, uh, he said, oh, yeah, that's something I would consider. He, that's what he said. I, I wasn't able to ask him about that again. But, but yes, the way that novel is written, it, is, it has witchcraft, politics, um, and then just the whole, it's a very African novel. And that's what it's about. It's about the African continent all in, in a speculative, I can't even, man, it's just, it's, it's, it's an, amazing, an amazing feat. And yes, I could see that type of if if uh, a science fiction awesome science fiction novel is going to boil up from africa i feel like it would be something like that something similar to uh wizard of the crow yes but nobody but you has read that i mean so the question is right now netty i mean and not to put any pressure on you or anything oh, you're the only it. one standing between that world of african modern contemporary african fiction and what we think of as the science fiction and fantasy reading audience <laughs> is there anybody else who bridges that gap at all? Uh, well, let me think. Um, uh, it's always a difficult question because then it, it does make you feel. Mike, uh, um, well, we, we can just keep this up until you can never write again because of your sense of responsibility. <laughs> <laughs> I try not to get nervous and then all because I, you know, I know I I am aware that I'm standing on the uh, uh, sort of. A demarcation of some sort. Yeah, I'm aware of, it. and um, I'm okay with it most of the time. But then sometimes it feels like a lot of pressure. Yeah. It does, um, and that's why I'm always trying to get people like, can, why don't you write this kind of work too? <laughs> there's power in numbers. There really is. There is power in numbers. Um, but yeah, I can't really think of anyone right now. It's terrible. You guys, please. Well, no, I was I'm interested that there's that right now there seems to be a lot of uh, Caribbean writers coming yeah. along at right now at the moment, mm -hmm. or, you know, at least from our perspective in the field. Uh, I mean, I think there was a moment where potentially, when I was thinking about uh, uh, having, having a group where we could have had Nalo Hopkinson, who's obviously from Canada, but also um, you know Karen Lord from uh, you know, Toby Buckle, uh, whoever else, because it's just a group, and there's finally this sort of upswelling of voices around us but still yeah. not from africa which you know I mean, and obviously it's one of those things that, will, that if it changes it will change slowly and carefully rather than overnight i mean i don't see vast anthologies of african science fiction or showing up or nigerian science fiction or whatever i don't yeah. even know how you go about creating such a thing right now well, and, and also there's a there's and I think it, it's going away slowly, but there's always been a threat of elitism, too. It's the same thing that we see like in academia and elsewhere. Yeah. But there's yeah. always been this this kind of general idea that um, science fiction and fantasy are uh, um, They are a type of writing that you do for children and they are not serious literature. Mm. You know, that, that was, you know, that's something that I, I've kind of gotten a whiff of that, you know, in the, just in the Nigerian um, writers' circles. And I think that's slowly going away. I think I've helped <laughs> get rid of that. I, I really do. Uh -huh. And I, I'd like to take a bow for that because um, I think that way of thinking is, is very limiting. You know, and the yeah, same thing yeah. is said... Yeah. Young adult, because we also Africa also needs some young adult writers. We definitely need some really it's, good yeah, young absolutely. adult. Writers. So um, yeah, and I think that's been something that's kind of kept the whole science fiction thing kind of 
suppressed for a while. I think that's true, and I think I think one of the things that happened, uh, in, in a way, it's it's oddly parallel to the early career of of of, um, of, of Chip Del- of Samuel R. Delaney, uh, who was told many times, if you want to be an African American writer, you have to write gritty, up from the streets realism. And what are you doing writing the science fiction and fantasy stuff? Um, and that yes. was a battle that he fought 30, well, he probably is still fighting it to some extent, but uh, certainly 40 years ago when he began, let me think, no, wait a minute, you know what? This is about the 50th anniversary of Chip Delaney's first novel. Wow. Holy crap. It was 1962, <laughs> really. Uh, it, was, it, was the, it was not the jewels of after, but possibly the fall of the towers. But at any rate, at early, I mean, I've, I've talked to him about this. We should get Chip on and talked about it. Uh, he was told, look, black writers don't write this fantasy science fiction yeah. stuff. They write about how horrible life is in the cities. And I wonder if the same thing happens with African writers and Nigerian writers. Yep, I, I think it is. I think it, that same elitism of serious writing is political. It has to, it has to be first and foremost political. And that, that word realism keeps popping up. Ooh, this yeah, is real. <laughs> Whatever that word means. It's, it drives me crazy. For a, and when I won the Shoyinka Award, I remember people describing uh, Zara the Windseeker. They're like, oh, that's just a book of fairy tales. I'm like, I don't write fairy tales. It's just a fairy tale. Really? Oh, my God. It used to make me so mad. Fairy tales. Like, I'm, not, I'm not interested in fairy tales. Oh. So, yeah, it, it's, it's something that I think needs to go away. But one thing we haven't talked about, though, is there is a Burgoyning group of African science fiction writers in South Africa. There's stuff happening yes. there. You know, the South African writers are really, you know, yes, 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 yes. Yes. But not Nigeria. No. Well, okay, <laughs> Nigeria has, uh, I, I remember there was a, an anthology of science fiction that yeah. they were trying to come up with uh, like two years ago. I've been waiting to see it for a uh-huh. while, and I much from it was called Lagos like 2060 something yes, like that. Yes, I remember. I, yes, I remember hearing about that. Yeah. So they, since, that's since Nigeria is a technologically sophisticated country, they have an oil industry, they have a high tech industry. It's you know it's 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 it's, it's got all the markers in place for a yeah. science fiction tradition. Yes. It so does. <laughs> it so does. It, it perfectly lends itself. Like. Oh my God! Look at the city of Lagos. Are you kidding me, man? Yeah. That place is perfect. <laughs> oh, hint, 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 hint. hint, hint, hint. Uh, yes. Hint, hint. Well. So yeah, I mean, it's yeah. gonna happen. Yeah. I think it. I think it will happen gradually, especially with the younger, the younger um, generation. They they've grown up with technology. They're interested in technology. They're all over Facebook, my goodness. I mean, it's like technology is, has become a part of, of the way they do things, but not in the same way as it has like in the United States, for, for example. Um, mm. it, and that's, that's what people should be writing about, that, that yeah. difference in the way, the way that uh, technology has, has taken root in these places. It's, it's different everywhere. It works differently uh-huh. everywhere. That's why there should be science fiction from everywhere. Imagine futures and, and ideas and, and, you know, stories that come up from these places. And, yeah, oh, I'll stop. I'll Are you getting a readership? <laughs> Do you have a readership in Nigeria? Yeah, because I remember when Zara the Winsinger came out. Uh, mm-hmm. You must have quite a readership in Nigeria by now. Yeah, slowly but surely, yes. Yes, and I have uh, my 
Akata Witch is going to be coming out in Nigeria soon. That'll be and, interesting. Oh, yeah, that will be interesting. I'm a little nervous, but um, I'll be okay. It's uh, <laughs> They had to change the title. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, yeah. It's going to be called What Sonny Saw in the Flames. And because, um, well, for two reasons. One, Akata, that word is highly inflammatory. <laughs> I was going to say, know. is it sounds like an, a Nigerian version of the N-word. Yes, it okay. is. Yep. So so there's that, and then also the word witch is is probably more inflammatory than the word Akata. Right. You know, and, and so, um, yeah, they, they, they're like, yeah, we need to get that word out of there, because if, if that word is in there, one, you might have religious fanatics on your back. Oh, God. <laughs> And t well, I already have them on my back, and even yes. from Nigeria, they oh, yeah. like Facebook. They really do. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but two, you know, some parents might not buy the book for their kids because they'll they'll deem it as, um, you know, w that it's full of witchcraft and Satanism. It yeah. is full of witchcraft. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we just don't need to advertise it in the title, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, it's yeah. just funny yeah, because yeah. the book is about. It's about juju and witchcraft and fun. So, I don't know, whatever. Congratulations, Teddy. You've managed to alienate American fundamentalists and Nigerian fundamentalists with one book. <laughs> yes, I feel very accomplished. I've arrived. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, we should probably begin to wind this up, Gary. We're getting towards the end of our allotted time, and I'm sure Nettie has things to do as well. But I want to thank you for, for joining us this morning or this evening. It's been a really, really uh, enjoyable conversation. I'm really happy you could find the time to chat with us. And thanks for having me. This has been great. Okay. Okay. We'll talk to you. I'm, um, well, you, Nettie, let's get together for lunch sometime soon, okay? I know. Yes. I'm so busy. I'm the oh, south my suburbs. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah if, you're ever, yeah, if you're ever in the suburbs, let me know. and. I will do that. I'll be out there possibly even tomorrow. <laughs> You're being stalked. Okay, on that cheery note, <laughs> thank you very much, Nettie. Thank you. And I'll talk to you next week, Gary. I'll talk to you next week, Jonathan. Good evening and good morning to you. Thank you. <laughs>